Mark chapter 12 this morning. Mark chapter 12. I know your bulletin says something different, and it's not Sue's fault. I, I had intended to continue in our series in James, but um, I attended the packing party yesterday as these were being assembled, and I thought, you know, I can't preach on James chapter 3, the, the, the tongue. After that, I decided I needed to preach something else that I thought the Lord would have us to look at this morning. So today, Mark chapter 12, we're just going to read a few verses at the very end of the chapter, starting in verse number 41. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrant. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Father God, thank you for the privilege of once again opening your word. How we praise you that you have given us your word. And Father, this book is your word. We do not look at this in any other way. We accept it 100% as the inspired, inerrant, infallible, perfect, holy word of God your revelation, your truth to us. And so, Father, we pray today we'd be in submission to it. We'd understand it. We'd hear it. I pray, Lord, we'd apply it to our lives. Fill me with your spirit as I speak today. Help me, Lord, to only say what I ought and not to say anything I should not. Help me, Lord, to be just your instrument. And I pray, Father, people wouldn't even hear me, wouldn't even notice me, but that you'd be our teacher, that you'd speak today. And, Lord, if there's even one here today who needs to apply this in a very specific way. I pray the Holy Spirit would do that, get a hold of their lives and help them today. May we learn from this wonderful, wonderful, nameless example in the Bible. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Lord's Day, we wrapped up our missions conference, our very first missions conference. And I hope that you found that uh, useful and interesting. I know that I, I truly enjoyed all of the sessions. I, I hope you enjoyed Brother Cornett as he spoke. I, I, I told him afterwards when I worked for him, I don't remember him being quite that good, but I, I, I thought he, was, uh, he, he did a very good job, and I hope, I hope you enjoyed that and got something out of it. But you know, the conference was based on Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, and Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 and, and everything that we heard there kind of compelled us to ask the question throughout each of those sessions, and, and even still this morning, Lord, what would you have me to do? That's kind of where we walked away. From each of those nights. And indeed, Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. If, if it is true that that verse is directed at me and directed at you, then doesn't it compel us to ask that question, Lord, what would you have me to do? As a matter of fact, if all of the Great Commission verses are directed us, directed at us, and I think they are, verses like Matthew chapter 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Or John chapter 20 and verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. If verses like that are directed at me and are directed at you, how do we not ask that question? Are we not compelled to ask that question, Lord, what would you have me to do? Jesus asked a very probing question one time, a question that every time I read it, it convicts me. 
He said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? I know he's given me a task. We all know that, right? We know we have a commission to reach our world for Jesus Christ. And we know that we're to be busy about that, and nothing else should stand in the way of that. But I also very often find myself calling him Lord, Lord, not doing the things he says. Can you relate to that? I think we all can. And I, I thought about that a little bit this week as I've, as I've ruminated a bit about our conference and some of the things that took place and all the things that have been happening here recently. And I thought, why is that? Why is it that there are times that I'm that way? We're all that way. And I thought, well, there's some reason. One reason might be, and this is not the case with me, but it might be the case with some. Some people just call him Lord, Lord, to do other things he says because they're not saved. They've never come to the place where they've trusted Christ. Pastor Phil talked about this morning in his Sunday school class. If a person can just live a life like the devil, if a person can live a life completely apart from Christ, have no interest in these kinds of things, their salvation is extremely suspect. That might be the case. It also might be the case that a person is saved and just simply disobedient. Talked about that a little bit this morning as well. There are such things as carnal Christians, Christians who just refuse to live the right way. It's a dangerous place to be. Either one of those two places are a dangerous place to be. But I think there's another reason. And I think a reason that maybe might be a little bit more appropriate for us to think about this morning. I think some people don't do those things for God. Call him Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that he says. I, I think some people do that because maybe they just think they don't have anything to offer. They don't have anything to offer. And I think it's to that category that our text speaks this morning. This widow was an absolute nobody in everybody's eyes. What was her name? Anybody know her name? Of course not, because not even Jesus told us her name. She was a nobody, and yet Jesus was pleased with her. Did you see that? This widow had absolutely nothing to offer. We'll talk about just how much she put in the offering plate in just a moment. It was nothing. You don't have a piece of money in your pocket small enough to relate to what she gave. And yet Jesus liked her offer. The widow gave less when compared to the gifts of others than, than all, than, than all, she gave less than anybody. And yet Jesus, she, she gave more than all of them put together in his mind. She literally gave two cents, if we were to try to put it in our vernacular, and the Lord was pleased. And so this morning I want us to see, I want us to think about this. Jesus wants your two cents worth too, and he wants mine. And I, I want us to see this morning that he can and he will do great things with even the smallest amount of ourselves that we give. Consider the scene. Consider what happened in this text. Consider what, what, what took place. Jesus is sitting in the temple and he's watching as people are coming and going. And he's watching as many rich people come and they're pouring great amounts of money into the offering, into the treasury. I think we've talked about this before, and, and uh, I think it was John Cornett who I heard preach on this one time, and he described the fact that they had a, this great, loud offering canister. And he, he even said it was some, some kind of a spiral-type thing, so when people would come in, they would pour all their money into this thing, and it would just make a huge cacophonous sound as it went down through. So people who had huge offerings, everybody would know as they came in and poured that in there. I recall... At a, at a church that I used to attend, where we used to have a, a, a missions offering, a, a, a penny offering. 
and people would come up and they'd have a great big thing up front and they'd take all their coins and pour in there and some people would have great bags and all these coins would go in there. That's what was happening here. Huge displays of rich people. And then this little widow walks up with her two little think. It probably, probably didn't even make a sound. And yet Jesus said what she had done was more than what all the others had done. He said that her gift, her service, her offering was the greatest of all of them. Look what he said in verses 43 and 44. He called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put it out of their abundance. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Can we learn anything from this story this morning? I think there's a few, a few things. And I'll be as brief as I can today. But I think there's several lessons we can learn that are appropriate to us today. One of them is in verse number 41. Many who were rich put in much. Many who were rich put in much. And I think about that, I, I think about the fact it doesn't matter what others do. That's one lesson, isn't it? It doesn't matter what others do. There will always be those who can do more. There will always be those who can give more than me and you. And we ought not to let ourselves be discouraged by that fact. This poor widow might easily have been discouraged as she was standing in line, perhaps, watching as these long, flowing robes of these, these rich people walked up there and poured huge amounts of money in. And she's standing there holding this tiny little, two little coins in her hand. She might have been discouraged. And she might have been turned off and she might have walked away. And the result would have been that she would not have given the gift that Jesus said was such a great gift if she had allowed what others were doing to discourage her. So we ought not to worry about those who can do more. We ought not to worry about those who can do less. Either We ought not to look down on those. Jesus talked about that a lot, didn't he? He told the parable of the Pharisee and the publican to make that very point. Remember that? Luke chapter 18, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. What a disgusting prayer. Prayed with himself, it says. And yet don't we sometimes do that? Look down maybe on others who maybe can't do as much as us. We ought not to do that either. Paul said we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. I always think that's an almost humorous verse. We ought not to pay attention to what others are doing because it doesn't matter what others do. Jesus taught a similar truth in the parable of the workers. Remember that? I'll let you read that one on your own. It's in Matthew chapter 20. Remember, he went, the man went and he called workers at different times during the day. And uh, the fact is, some did a lot, some did a little. But one of the lessons that we learned from that parable is, it doesn't matter what others do. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Many who are rich put in much. I, I see another lesson here in verse number 42. Verse 42, then one poor widow came. It doesn't matter what others do. It doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter who you are. One poor widow came. I've heard it said, and so have you, that God doesn't call those who are fit. He fits those who are called. You heard that before? Certainly it's true here. We see it so often in the Bible. We see it all throughout the pages of Scripture. God calls those who in the world's eyes seem to be the least, seem to be almost unqualified, we would say. He uses the services or the talents or the gifts of someone whose offerings are so much less than we would expect him to be pleased with. And yet he is pleased with that. You know, Jesse had several sons. And every one of them in the eyes of the world seemed to have been a greater choice, a better choice, than the one that God was interested in. And that was the poor shepherd boy David. And that's the one God chose to use. 
Mary Magdalene was a fallen woman, possessed with multiple demons, all kinds of problems in life. No one would have thought her to be useful, and yet see how Christ used Mary Magdalene. All of the apostles, all of them were disparaged as unlearned and ignorant men. And yet look how God used them, as he has used no, no other. Peter, brash, loudmouthed. Open your mouth, stick your foot in your mouth. Peter, God used him. James and John, ambitious and proud and self-seeking and the sons of thunder. Temper, tantrum, James and John. Look how God used them. Thomas, the doubter and the skeptic, bordering on an unbeliever at times. Look how God used him. We can go on. The Bible's filled. The Bible is filled with examples of less than perfect people with less than perfect offerings that God used in great ways. Gideon was afraid. Moses had a speech impediment. John Mark was a quitter. Timothy was sickly and a, some would say, a wimp, weak type person. All less than perfect people, less than perfect offerings, but they gave those less than perfect offerings. And look what God did with them. And so to the poor widow in our text, certainly she didn't have much to give. doesn't matter who you are. It didn't matter the fact that she was nameless. It didn't matter the fact that she was an outcast. It didn't matter the fact that she was someone no one would pay any attention to. God calls and uses all kinds of people. And God can call and use you, you too. So it doesn't matter what others do. It doesn't matter who you are. Number three, it doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter what you have. Then one poor widow came, verse 42, and threw in two mites. Two mites. Now let me, let me read you a, a quote here from a commentary that describes these coins. It says, the coins were the smallest in use. They were called a lepton, which is literally a thin one. One lepton, so we have been informed, equaled one-sixteenth of a penny. Two of them equaled an English farthing. If you're holding a King James Bible this morning, you'll see it says that they made up a farthing. That, that coin, the English farthing, was so worthless, its production has been discontinued in Britain. The whole point of the passage is the woman could not have given less because her love forbade her retaining even one lepton for herself. Neither could she have given more, for this was all she possessed. We can only imagine her quietly apologizing to God for the poverty-stricken offering. She didn't know that God, at that moment, was seated only a few yards away watching her every action. Isn't that an astonishing thought? As I read that, I couldn't help but be amazed. She did not know that God, at that moment, was seated only a few yards away, watching her every action. It seemed surprising that he knew exactly what she was giving. The small coins would have been hidden in her hand. She would be ashamed for anyone to know how little she was giving, and yet he knew. He was fully aware of her gift. He knew every detail of the sacrifice behind her offering. He probably knew also that she would give her last coin, would also be willing to give her last breath for the Lord in his house. We cannot help but wonder how we compare with this woman of a bygone age. Oh, it doesn't matter what you have. Now, I hope and I pray this morning that this sermon doesn't come across as being only about money because I think the topic is far greater than money. I think the topic goes way beyond money. I think it's rather about giving of ourselves and what we have to Christ, but, but we can't change the fact that Jesus used the example of money. The text is talking about money, and so I can only do what the Bible says. And so we have to talk about it just for a minute. So let me just make this one point. We're talking about the fact it doesn't matter what you have. Well, think about that with respect to money. A little money is a lot in God's hands. A little is a lot. Ironside said heaven's method of computing values is altogether different to that of earth. 
We are accustomed to judge by the amount given, but the Lord estimates the value of the gift by the amount one has left. Over and over in the Bible, we're told a little money is a lot in God's hands. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. We could go on. Those are just a few. There's verse after verse after verse after verse after verse in our Bible that teaches us that a little money is a lot in God's hands. Now I have to stop right there, Friendship Bible Church, and say to you, remind you that we do not believe in the prosperity gospel here. There are folks like Joel Osteen and others today who would preach that. And I don't want you to be confused about that. We don't believe that. We don't give in order to get. That's not what we believe. There is no guarantee that every dollar I place in the plate here at Friendship Bible Church is going to be returned to me in the form of dollars. That's the prosperity gospel. You'll have health and wealth and prosperity. It's guaranteed. No, it's not guaranteed. But I'll tell you what is in the Bible. There is a principle in the Bible that says God will bless us if we give. We leave it up to him how he does that. He might bless us financially. I can tell you as a personal testimony that as my wife and I have tried throughout our married life to be faithful to giving, that we have been blessed financially, and I've got to believe that part of it is due to that. But that is no guarantee it's going to be a financial blessing, but there's a guarantee it's going to be a blessing. You cannot outgive God. It is simply not possible. And whatever little amount you're able to give, God will bless you. Warren Wiersbe said it's not the portion, but the proportion that is important in giving. And so, I think clearly one of the things we see here is that, uh, is that Jesus is saying this principle applies to money and money gifts. It is true. It doesn't matter what you have, and God will bless it. But it goes beyond that. Think about some other places. A little bit that we can give in some other things, not just money, God can use in great ways. Think about soul winning. A little effort spent at soul winning, God can do great things with. George W. Truett said, the bringing of one soul to Jesus is the highest achievement possible to human life. And you know what? It doesn't take much. It really does not. God can use our slightest efforts in wonderful and amazing ways to build his kingdom. John Bunyan. Anybody know who John Bunyan is? He's the author of The Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan. Great Christian of years gone by. You know how John Bunyan was saved? John Bunyan was saved because somebody dropped a tract in the street. And he picked it up and read it. Now, I don't know if that person purposely dropped that tract in the street or not, but regardless, God used it. Whether they meant to do it or it just fell out of their pocket, that tiny little offering, God used. And John Bunyan was saved, and Pilgrim's Progress was written, and glorious things have taken place as a result down through history. How about Dwight L. Moody? Dwight L. Moody was saved by a Sunday school teacher. Thank God for Sunday school teachers. We need a few more of them, by the way. Dwight L. Moody's Sunday school teacher one time got a hold of, or got, got, got this burden on his heart for, uh, for, for, for Moody, and he said, I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to him. He was a shoe salesman. He had no great training, but he just went and he just shared what he knew. And Dwight Moody was saved. 
And Dwight Moody has been responsible for who knows how many, hundreds of, some say millions of people are in the kingdom today because of the influence of Dwight L. Moody. And his influence goes on, continues, even today after he's been with the Lord for years. Listen, a little effort at soul winning. It's a lot in God's hands. A little effort at prayer is a lot in God's hands. I read one time a story. The story was related as true. You never know about these things, but it was related as being true. The story said a, a woman of very poor means went into a grocery store. She was uh, without food, without money, without anything. And she had come to the end of herself, and she went into this grocery store, and she walked up to the counter, and she asked the grocer if he would just give her some bread. And he knew her. He had seen her before. He knew her state. He knew she had nothing. He said, well, what are you going to pay for it with? And she said, I don't have anything. She said, all I have is this little piece of paper that I wrote a little prayer on. And he snatched it out of her hand and tossed it on a scale. And he said, well, let's just see what that's worth. And he put it on a scale. And, of course, the paper dropped the scale down. And he grabbed a loaf of bread and tossed it on a scale. The scale didn't move. And so he tapped the scale. The scale didn't move. So he thought to himself, I can't be. So he grabbed something else and he tossed it out. Or he thought, surely that would dislodge it and it would drop down. But the scale didn't move. And by now, the woman was starting to cry. People were starting to gather. A mob was beginning to form, and the guy was turning red in the face. He started grabbing things and putting them on there, hoping that eventually it would go down. It didn't go down until finally it was overflowing. And so he grabbed all the stuff off the scale, threw it in a bag, and went ahead and topped it up with a few other things, handed her to the groceries, and she went out of the room. Sobbing. The guy took a look at the scale for a minute. Of course, it was looking perfect now. He put a couple things on it. It was working perfectly. He thought, wow. I don't know what that was all about. And then he noticed a little piece of paper laying on the floor. It had fallen off, and he picked it up. And written on that piece of paper were the words, Give us this day our daily bread. Hmm. A little effort at prayer, the tiniest of prayers, can accomplish so much in God's hands. You know my life verses, Jeremiah chapter 33 and verse 3. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things, which thou knowest not. We don't have to be eloquent. We don't have to be great theologians. All we got to do is call. Give us this day our daily bread. Spurgeon said, I am sometimes startled at the power of a feeble prayer to win a speedy answer. A little ability is a lot in God's hands. One man said the real tragedy in life is not in being limited to one talent, but in the failure to use that one talent talent. A little faith is a lot in God's hands. Luke chapter 17, the Lord said, if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say unto this sycamore tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea and it should obey you. Listen, if there's anything that comes out of our text, if there's anything that comes from the example of this poor widow, it's this, it doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter what you have. God can and will use you and yours if you will but give it to him. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites. So it doesn't matter what others do. It doesn't matter what, who you are. It doesn't matter what you have. What matters, number four, what matters is a willing heart. This poor widow displayed the required attitude. The willing heart. God blesses our offerings. God blesses our service. God blesses all that we do. When we give from our heart, when we give willingly, cheerfully, worshipfully, that's the attitude God blesses. Exodus chapter 25, speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. 
Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. First Chronicles 29, And the people rejoiced for that they offered willingly, because with a perfect heart they offered willingly to the Lord. And David the king also rejoiced with great joy. Second Corinthians 8, 5, This they did not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord, and unto us by the will of God. Chapter 8 and verse 12, If there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to the man hath, and not according to that he hath not. We need to ask ourselves this morning, do we have the attitude of this poor widow? Do we have that willing heart? I've heard it said, heard it preached by somebody that Brother Phil and I both know, that people do exactly what they want to do. I heard him preach, Gary Price, I heard him preach one time, and he said, you're going to do exactly what you want to do. And you know, I think that's true. I think if we don't want to give, if we don't want to serve, if we don't want to live for Christ, that's exactly what's going to happen. Because such things only happen when we have a willing heart, when we have the right attitude. One man said, if you only serve God when you feel like it, the older you get, the less you'll feel like it, and the less you'll serve God. Those of us who are getting older and gray-headed can nod to that. It gets harder and harder to get out of bed. It gets harder and harder to motivate ourselves to do things. Does it not? Moms and dads, you ought to be listening to this because if you're raising your kids such that you're saying to them, as long as you feel like it, fine. You know what you're doing? You're raising them to go to hell. That's what you're doing. You need to teach your kids how, while they do feel like it, to go and to serve. One pastor used to say that Christians only actively serve Christ an average of 10 years. Another, more pessimistic, put that figure at more like two to three years. I personally think they're talking about nominal Christians, Christians who probably might not even be saved. But nonetheless, that seems to be the average in churches. And I think maybe it's just because people only serve when they feel like it. Oh, listen, we need to work on our hearts. God, give us the heart of this woman. God, give us the heart of this poor widow who had a willing heart to give. And if that heart attitude is not present in us, Oh, let's pray. Ask God, do something in my heart. I see I need it. Help me to have it. Doesn't matter what others do. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you have. What matters is a willing heart. And finally, number five, what matters is giving hands. Giving hands. This poor widow displayed not only the required attitude, but also the required action. Look at verse 42. Three little words, and through in. And through in. It's not enough to say you believe. We've talked about this just a couple weeks ago in our last study in James. Faith without works, it's dead. Believe. Faith is manifested in action. Anybody know who the great Wallendas are? Anybody remember the great Wallendas? What? Yes, sir. Trapeze artists. Imagine if the great Wallendas were to stretch a high wire across the Grand Canyon. I think somebody did this just recently. But let's, let's imagine that they were doing that. And as you watched in astonishment, one of them just walked back and forth across that wire like it was like, And then they got back to the other side, and they grabbed a wheelbarrow. And they went back and forth across that thing, pushing that wheelbarrow three or four times. And you thought, wow, that's amazing. And then one of them walked up to you and said, Do you believe that I can push that wheelbarrow across that high wire? And you would say, well, of course I believe. I just watched you do it several times. And then they say to you, Get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> See, that's, that's belief. 
That's the belief we're talking about. It's one thing to say. It's another thing to do. It's one thing to have the right attitude. It's another thing to have the right action. Abraham believed God, and it was counted on him to righteousness. But what James taught us a couple weeks ago is that that belief showed itself in action. You know, I believe that Abraham actually was not only willing to sacrifice his son, I believe Abraham actually did sacrifice his son. Oh, the knife never entered the body, but I believe it was on the way down. I believe he had come to the point where he was actually giving his son when the angel stopped his hand. I can't prove that. That's just what I believe. Listen, everything that we've seen about this poor widow contains lessons, but perhaps this is the most important one. Nothing really happened until she actually took the two coins that were in her hand and threw them in until she gave them to Jesus. Our missions conference is over. And we're left pondering this question. Lord, what would you have me to do? And I pray this morning that we're challenged by this poor widow as we ponder that question. Because Jesus was so pleased with her small effort. I fear that sometimes we think when we come through a conference like that, that if we do not surrender everything and go running off to the deepest, darkest jungles of Mozambique to work with John Stavropoulos, that, you know, we're not, we're not doing it. But Jesus was pleased with just this small thing. And maybe God's asking some small thing. And so I pray we're challenged this morning by this widow. You know, we have not yet reached our goal of Africa. We have several nations on there. Maybe the Lord's speaking to somebody's heart about that. Wouldn't it be wonderful to come to the end of the year and know that we had reached all of Africa? In a moment, we're going to pray over this mountain of Operation Christmas Child boxes. Some have worked so hard on this this year. I was astonished yesterday as I looked at the level of effort that had gone into the packing party. The missions conference was the same way. So much work, so much effort going into that. And you know, some people might look at a little thing like one of these little shoeboxes and they might say, that's just such a, a minor thing. Not in the hands of God. Every one of those boxes represents at least a soul maybe multiple souls saved. I believe God will multiply that pile of boxes in so many ways. I cannot fathom when we get to heaven what God is going to say and what we're going to see and the people that are going to come up to us and remind us of a shoebox. Souls saved because some were willing to give two cents to Jesus. Because when you give what you have to Jesus, when you give even two cents to him, He's pleased, and the kingdom is built.